0: whether you're living on a prayer or living La Vida Loca. Today, Song Chronicles is proud to present Desmond Child, Come on. talking to a man who has had five decades of number one hits. He's worked with Cher, Joan Jett, Alice Cooper, Ricky Martin, Kiss, Bon Jovi, Aerosmith, Barbara Streisand, Katy Perry, And countless amazing
1: songs. Hi, I'm Desmond Child, and you're listening to Song Chronicles with Louise Goffin.
0: Well, look, I got a celebrity intro, but here it is. I'm sitting here with Desmond Child.
1: Hey. Hey. Hey, hey. (laughs) (laughs) It's
0: so good to see you, and I've been here once before. It's very fun in here. It's fabulous like you. Uh So one thing that I didn't know about you is that your mom was a Cuban songwriter.
1: That's right. Her name was Elena Casals, and she wrote in a style called boleros, which is like a romantic ballad style that was developed in Cuba in the 1930s, 40s, 50s. And um, I grew up listening to songs being written ever since I was born. So I didn't know people didn't write songs. I thought, you know, that's what people do. And I could feel, you know, her emotion. And if she was happy, she'd write a happy song. If she visited a city, she'd write a song about the city she just visited. And if she was sad, which was most of the time, she'd write, you know, a very sad song about loss and love and... Death.
0: And that's a great way to grow up, knowing that if you feel things and there are things happening in the world that you can write about it.
1: When I go to co-write with someone, for me, it's a sacred circle where they can say anything they want to say to me. And if they say this is off the record, it stays off the record, literally stays off the record. Mm -hmm. You know, the record. <laughs> the 33 RPM, now digitized, now streamed. Yeah. And so I try to, as my job, bring out something that I might feel yearning inside. A yearning inside coming from their deepest part of their soul. A part that actually, if they were able to turn around, they could see the universe. But, you know, somehow the universe is pushing forward from the back of their minds to the front of their consciousness, something they really need to say and sing about because when they do that, that process evolves them, brings them to their next stage in their life. And I learned this kind of thinking from my acting coach, Sandra Seacat, who you know has coached some of the greatest actors of their time and you know, a lot of them won Oscars. And um, I started studying with her in 1979. My class was um, Mickey Rourke, uh, Jessica Lange, Michelle Pfeiffer, Christopher Reeve, Cicely Tyson sometimes, Marlo Thomas. Um, It was like Francis Fisher. It was the most incredible class and me and this other boy, we were just like the flies on the wall and Sandra just liked me so she let me attend because I wasn't really an actor, even though I did some scenes with, you know, some of those people like Jessica. But the other boy, his name is Lawrence Bender and he produced Pulp Fiction. So he went on from being a college boy like me onto like Great Greatest Heights. And she always tried to explain that if you, if you don't get a part, it's because that wasn't your soul's journey. So don't feel bad about it, even if you think you were perfect for it. And that's how she, you know, brought a lot of actors off the ledge. And it's so true. Uh, sometimes a stretch, um, and you don't think it's something for you. That stretch makes you grow. And so you know, she would do a lot of things, like dream assignments, and she would, you know, talk about the archetypes in history of art and religion, and how the people that become famous, it's usually because their archetype is hardwired inside of us, and the closer their archetype is to that, you know, hardwired recognition that we have inside, I mean, if If you see something kind of slithering across the floor in the corner, you jump up, even though there's no way that a snake could be in that room. So we're hardwired that same way to recognize, you know, certain things because our own growth as an audience happens when we watch these people perform. They fulfill something deep in us, and that helps us grow forward. So the actor is growing and performing. Each performance is special and different and deeper as they get further and further into it. And the listener, the viewer, experiences their journey, but is also getting to work things out deep inside themselves. And that's the back and forth. And on that very deep level, that's how I think about songwriting, not what the Poster is going to look like when the album comes out with my title on it. And that's why I think I've managed to survive five decades of number one hits. It's because I really try to get someone to be their truest self or at least the closest to their archetype self like Alice Cooper and um, Joan Jett people like that. They, like They're so purely themselves and so recognizable, you know, from history. Joan, Joan Jett, Joan of Arc, you know, the rebel, you know, fighting for her cause. I mean, it's just right, even their name's the same. Um, Alice Cooper, the devil, Pan, you know, the dark force. And we love evil, because we have evil in ourselves. When we see it, act it out, with a singer or an actor on the stage, Ozzy Osbourne fits into that category, we, get, we don't have to be evil ourselves. And that's one of the great things that, um, the gift that artists bring to the world. When you start thinking about what your next hit's gonna be, that's when you shut down and nothing can happen because you're not in the moment You're just thinking about the glory of the past.
0: I love everything that you've just said because it seemed I had this impression that you were looking from a marketing point of view, and I couldn't have been more wrong. You're looking from the inside. It's a spiritual journey. You're pulling out the person that you're working with, and you're letting that lead, which is the most potent thing that anyone can do when they're doing songwriting or making art of any kind.
1: And get the chance to take that journey with them and grow myself. And I get to sometimes tell a little bit of my story in the song they're singing. That's collaboration. And so a wonderful example of this is a song I wrote with John Bon Jovi and Richie Sambora. And it's a song that anyone who's been at a strip joint or a bar at closing time will always get to hear. And that song's called Living on a Prayer. Because by the time it gets to the last chorus and it modulates up after a bar of three, um, everyone will automatically jump up. And that's when they turn up the lights and say, you don't have to go home, but you you can't stay here. And so that's why that song has become so popular. That's what I think, anyway. Um, But the story of that song had our three stories woven through it. John Bon Jovi, working class kid trying to do good, you know with this six string in hock and and you know that 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 was so historian and and Richie too. And for me, I lived in New York City with my girlfriend at the time, Maria Vidal and um, we were boyfriend and girlfriend for like four years while I was going to NYU and then I just started songwriting full time, and she was right. She was working as a waitress at a bar co- and bar restaurant called Once Upon a Stove, and they had singing waitresses and waiters. And she had her waiter stage name was uh, waitress stage name was Gina Velvet. So Gina works the diner all day, working for her man. She brings home her pay for love, and that's where those lyrics came from. So this, you know, when I was telling the story, my original name is Johnny Barrett. So just, I love alliteration. So uh, it was Johnny and Gina. And then John looked at me and said, it can't be Johnny. That's my name. Everyone calls me Johnny. And then we were like all like kind of, "Mm -mm." maybe it was Richie that said, well, what about Tommy? You know, so that's how Tommy and Gina were born. And
0: and that song, I heard a songwriter play at a listening room the other day, did a cover of it, and it it sounds so great today Where's my
1: two cents? (laughs) Yeah. My royalty. Exactly. My performance royalty at the listening room. I'm going to call them up. I want the money direct now. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Just drop it on it.
0: (laughs) Can you tell me about the movie, too?
1: I met my husband in, wow, we've been together 32 years, In 1989 and um, we lived in California then the earthquake came and then we moved to Miami Beach and um, that's where I'm from originally I went to Miami Beach High and um, I just you know started getting into Latin music and all this kind of stuff and we started building a life there and at a certain point we decided we wanted children So we had already been together for a very long time. And so um, we decided we wanted to do it through in vitro fertilization. And so we went on a search for an egg donor and a surrogate mom that it would all line up. And so many spiritual, beautiful things happened. We met our surrogate mom in India uh, uh, when we went on a conference with Deepak Chopra. She was an American girl that lived in Nashville. And um, she taught at a yoga studio. And so we started filming every little bit of our journey. And eventually, 12 years later, when the, when the children were 10 years old, um, you know, we put a movie together, a documentary called Two, T-W-O, The Story of Roman and Nero, N-Y-R-O. and Y R O. And you can find it on iTunes. And um, if you go uh, to our website, it kind of, tells everything and that's uh, www.tothedocumentary.com and uh, you can see clips from the movie and it's so sweet because our children were narrating the film and so it was like it's it's such a great story and um, in the middle of it I mean through it we tell the story of Curtis's mom came from Columbia, Missouri, from, you know, from a very religious family, and she um, went through this whole journey that took her 10 years to accept the fact that her son was gay and accept me as a real part of their family. And when the children came and all of that, it was like she just, her heart melted. And um, she, in fact, went from being very afraid to becoming an advocate for GLBT families in the Methodist Church and explaining to the people in her church and in other churches, because she would go around, you know, what it means to be gay or to have a gay child and how it's normal. It's just a part of nature, it's a variation like blue eyes. And I think she's changed a lot of hearts and minds. Maybe so much so that now the Methodist Church is going to split in half, you know, from the people that are okay with gay to the people that are not okay with gay. So it's like, well, you know, that's how it is. But the journey in the movie is, uh, is, is very special, and we've gotten many letters from people telling us that having that movie in their hand, that's how they came out to their parents. Because I think that a lot of people's parents, their biggest fear is that their children won't have children, that they won't have grandkids. And that was something that they had been looking forward to. And that's more than anything, like sometimes it's like their biggest fear. And when they see that gay people are not infertile, (laughs) and that we can have children, and and that our children turned out so wonderful, um, and little jocks, (laughs) they're not Broadway babies, let me tell you that. Um, Then the, the fear level goes down and then they can open up to the fact that they have a very special child in their family that has other kinds of gifts and things to bring to the family.
0: And more streetwise than one would think. You're right. They're not Broadway babies.
1: No. (laughs) They don't want to see another Broadway show in their life. (laughs) I think we started by taking them to Billy Elliot in London when they were four years old. And uh, they've seen every major Broadway show ever since. And now it's dragging them there, kicking and screaming.
0: Yeah, that happens after a certain age. So will you talk a little bit about Lady Liberty and what that's all about?
1: I got a call from Jay Landers, who's the executive music supervisor for Barbara Streisand. For many years, I think they've made 32 or 33 albums together. And she had decided that with everything that was going on in the world, she wanted to record an album of songs that reflected what was on her mind. In fact, there's a song on the record called What's On My Mind. And... um, Jay said, will you write something for Barbara? And and I had submitted many songs to Jay through the years. They never got past him. And um, he's very, very picky. And so I, in fact, spent a day with him at his house where he played me all of the most beautiful, exotic Barbara Streisand songs that I had never heard. And um, I started to get it in in a very deep way. And right there at the piano, I, I closed my eyes, and I envisioned the very first time I saw Barbara Streisand was in a movie called Funny Girl. And one of the most impressive scenes was when she had decided to go back and try to win her man back or whatever, and she was on a ferry boat, and she crosses in front of the Statue of Liberty, and she has, a kind of bouquet of flowers in her hand, like going up like the torch. And so you see the double image of two strong, determined, stoic, proud women. And so to me, Barbara and the Statue of Liberty had this very kind of deep connection from, from my childhood. And so I decided, you know, I started, my hands started moving by themselves on the piano, and I started writing a song called Lady Liberty. And um, it was just like channeled through me. And so I said, okay, I know what I'm going to do. So I went back to Nashville, and then I procrastinated for like three weeks, four weeks. And Jay started sending me, you know, urgent texts saying, Barbara's album's going to close. What are you doing? What are you going to send me? And I just felt so much anxiety, because I had decided to not co-write the song, to just tackle it by myself. And I hadn't really done that in many years since I was in my group, Desmond Child and Rouge. I'd always started co-writing and just kept going that way. And so I decided, okay, I'm going to buckle down. So I called my arranger, and he sat up in the corner of my office, and he just sat there for hours upon <laughs> hours until I finally got off my phone and my email and got up and walked to my piano, sat down and started playing Lady Liberty and scribbling uh, words down and within an hour the song was written and he was already starting to program the song in the corner. And so um, I recorded it, an incredible singer, Vanessa Campagna, who had been a child uh, performer with Marvin Hamlish and friends and she had always sung the Streisand song, so she already had it in her in her system and so I brought her in to sing it and it was just goosebumps from beginning to end and I sent it to uh, Jay and he said this is good I think this might be good might need some changes you know this and that as he as he would and so he played it from Barbara, and she just fell in love with the song. And before I knew it, I was in her little guest house in Malibu teaching her the song. And um, those were, you know, the, some of the most exciting hours. She wore me out, by the way. I was just standing there, and of course she was in her beautiful, you know, booth—not booth, but uh, like a, a kind of like a singing area with a with a little mic and. Uh, you know her stool and everything and the and the the um, music stand and uh, I came around behind her and I saw you know her handwriting over my song with my name on it, it was like wow you know and so uh, I came back a few weeks later with the tracks and uh, she came in and she just sang it like she sang the first one for nothing just for us to get a Uh, you know a sound I think we used most of that track and uh, then sang it a couple more times and then you know like that was it she gave her all and she, uh, you know I spent the whole night with her engineer comping together the best of you know those three performances it was mainly the first first take of course and um, she came back the next day and it was like wow she looked at me and she was like you know, she's a very picky, critical person, a perfectionist. And um, she was like, she loved it. You know, so she, you know, I got her to, to sing some of those high notes again, just hoping I could, could, you know, get a little, squeeze a little more out. And uh, she was like, oh, you're, it's, it's good, it's good, it's good. You're a taskmaster, you're a slave driver. You know, and I said, no, come on, you can do this. Come on, do it. And uh, then um, she did, and she, like, absolutely to show off, I'm sure, just blew us away. Then uh, she came to say goodbye to me, and she's not really much of a hugger, really. I was told not to, like, try to hug her or kiss her or anything, uh, you know. And so she came up and gave me this big hug, and she looked up at me and she said, You're a pain in the ass, and I commend you. (laughs) (laughs) I want that on my tombstone. (laughs) <laughs> well,
0: hopefully it won't come for a while
1: it can come now because i work with barbara streisand yeah. i'm ready to die <laughs> yeah, right i'm ready
0: that's the moment you say kill me now
1: kill me now yeah. it doesn't get better than that
0: yeah well hopefully we'll find some other good moments to talk about i mean i'm thinking a married gay man with kids moving to nashville like what was it like Coming that sounds to... like a
1: sitcom called Gay Acres.
0: <laughs> I mean, what was it like being in Nashville when you first moved here? And what do you come across? Because it is, it is religious and not as liberal as, say, California. I don't know how Miami is. I've never lived there. What do you come across here? And how has it changed over the years?
1: Well, Nashville is really a cosmopolitan City and it has been since the inception. It was always called the Athens of the South. In fact, they did a reproduction of the Parthenon in in Greece, um, and it's it's like what it would look like if it wasn't a ruin, mm-hmm. I'd like to scale, and it's so incredible. And so the the fact is that um, during the Civil War, I think. Memphis was with the South and and Nashville was with the North. It was kind of a divided uh, thing. So to this day, Nashville is, you know, has like this artistic vein that goes through it. And so it's kind of a blue dot and a roiling red sea. That's why we, you know, we're happy here on our little blue dot, you know, on this island of misfits or whatever and um, everyone's been absolutely, always loving and accepting, and even the the soccer moms and dads when we we were going to travel soccer with our kids, you know. Eventually, I mean, Curtis, my husband, is such a doll. You know, people like me because they like him. You know, <laughs> he's just the most giving, most wonderful, most handsome guy. They, they have come up to me with tears in their eyes, and they said, you know what? We never knew a gay person. We never saw a gay family. You've changed our hearts and minds.
0: Well, how do we get more of that? That's a great story. Well, when- by not
1: running away, not running away from our little towns and sticking it out and showing people your worth. Because, yeah, it's a lot easier to, hey, just go to, you know, San Francisco or some place that's you know ultra-liberal, and then you can feel free to walk down the street holding hands. I mean, we still can't do that here. I mean, who knows who, who has a shotgun and would take a shot at us or something? I don't know. I haven't even heard of that even happening. You know, it's, um, that's the thing. And, and that's true for all artists. They long to be with other artists in exciting towns like New York. Los Angeles, um, Chicago. And the country then gets robbed of all these beautiful girls and boys that could have been teachers that could have contributed with, you know, local theater groups or, you know, and, and enriched their town and taught people about art instead of just running away. And then what's left are folks that don't understand certain things. They haven't seen a lot of stuff. In fact, of Americans do not have passports. So that means 10% have passports. It doesn't mean they even took a trip. They just have passports. So imagine how few Americans travel and have seen other cultures and have experienced what a third world country is and the poverty and the need, but the spirit and the, the, uh, the tribal spirit You know, of these people that, you know, they grow up in their great-grandfather's house. Everybody just never moves, and that's okay. You know, all of these things, I mean, we grew up, my kids can't wait to get away from us, you know, and have their own cool apartment somewhere with their friends and do whatever they want. You know, it's very different when you go to Latin America. And, and to other places in the world. I'm sure Africa is the same way. It's like, you don't leave your family. You just make your family bigger with, you know, with the people that join it. And so I think that because so many of us live in this kind of world where it's you know, everybody drives their separate car, and everybody lives in their separate apartment, and they throw their parents into a nursing home and don't even come to visit them, and you know this kind of, kind of cold, coldness, and loneliness, is you know what curses modern civilization. And so of course we don't understand taking care of the environment because, hey, air's pretty good here. What do I have to worry about? What's going on elsewhere? Um, I don't know what I'm drinking in my water, but I, it doesn't taste bad. I mean, it's like, it's like, wow, you lose touch with the world and then you don't see your responsibility in it.
0: Community. We're in a world community and music has this reach that, as you said, it comes from people's deeper selves and when you're walking around shopping and it's playing in the background and it's seeping into your consciousness while you're buying something from Whole Foods or Ralph's or Kroger's. Is that making us grow in that moment?
1: Well, that's what you call general licensing in the performance rights organization world. And actually, it's a very important way that songwriters can make a living because we have a collection system where every store has to pay in a little bit. You know, every restaurant has to pay in a little bit. And then there's a very long tail, you know, where a lot of people, including people who write orchestral music that doesn't really sell, can actually, you know, send their kids to college. And uh, that's the beauty of, uh, you know, the performance rights organizations. I happen to be with ASCAP. I've been there now 42 years, and um, I'm actually on the board of ASCAP, so I'm very happy and proud to uh, represent songwriters on the board and to you know, go with my fellow publishers to Washington and fight for things like the Music Modernization Act to raise the rates of streaming because, I mean, my song, uh, Living on a Prayer, which I co-wrote with John Bon Jovi and Richie Sambora, last year, let's say, had half a billion streams, and my take-home pay was $6,000 for half a billion streams. And half a billion streams is like the kind of streams Ariana Grande gets you know, or Jay-Z or Beyonce. I mean, it's almost like a new song worth of streams.
0: Something's very wrong.
1: Something is very wrong with the system, and I think the folks that set up these systems at the beginning didn't really understand technology, so they didn't take it seriously, and then all of a sudden these very low rates got embedded into the system. And, you know, the Music Modernization Act was a, a, a unanimous, bipartisan Act of Congress signed by the president that in these kind of very separate times, you know, we worked very hard to bring the, the the two sides of the equation together and see that it was important. Because guess what, I'm you know very liberal and of course you know I'll vote Democrat, uh, but the other side they love music too. They can't live without it either. So that's one of the beauties of, um, of, of, so let's say a song like Living on a Prayer. One of the guys that I, I met in, in, in Washington who happens to be a congressman from a district in northern Georgia, his name might sound familiar, Doug Collins, and the way he, he was one of the ones that led the fight, and the way he speaks about music, because he was a chaplain in, in Iraq, um, and he came back and got into politics. I mean, could make you cry, the way he speaks about music. And yet, we're on like completely opposite sides of everything else. And so he'll text me, and he texted me from a game in Georgia that was happening. There were 95,000 people in this stadium, and they were playing living on a prayer over the loud system, and over the, on the screens, were the lyrics. So it was like this giant 95,000 karaoke and everyone was singing it. And, you know, it was like, isn't that great? Um, That, you know, the people's hearts can share in something even though they may look at the world differently.
0: I gotta say, the stories you recount, and it's hard to imagine what any of that would feel like, like having... Barbra Streisand sing your song and having 90,000 people singing the words to your song, does it feel ever like the norm for you or do you still feel like every time something like that happens, it's new and exciting?
1: Well, I, I get a kick out of hearing my music. Um, you know, sometimes people will send me Like a little clip recently, there was a guy on a park bench, and he was singing Living on a Prayer, and before long, the entire park. It was like a scene from Sunday in the park with George. They were all singing it loud. People on blankets all turned and looked at this homeless man on a bench singing, and they all joined in, and it went viral. So I get a big kick out of uh, seeing stuff like that, or the guy at the gas station that was being... um, Punked or whatever, and he started singing "Living on a Prayer" and like really going out. Or the guy in the in the bleachers that was like dancing uh to it, crazy. Uh, I mean, it's it's great, you know that you know I've been able to be a collaborator on songs that have touched the world in such a deep way. I mean, you know, "Living on a Prayer." I keep mentioning it, but it's pretty much one of the you know most important songs. I've been a part of. Um, we get letters from people all over the world telling us how that song got them through a very hard time. Or it was the song they sang, you know, at their wedding and it meant something to them and brought back so many memories. And, you know, the ones I'm touched by are the people that had recovered from cancer, and that was the song they heard every day to get them through the chemo. We once got a letter from a guy who said he had decided to kill himself. So he drives his car to the bridge, and he just jumps out of the car, leaves the car doors open, the radio playing, the engine running, runs to the edge of the, the railing and starts to lean out, and then living on a prayer comes on the radio, and that was his favorite song. So he said, oh, that's amazing at this moment, uh, you know, That's, you know, such a sign. So he went back in the car and said, okay, this is the last song I'm ever going to hear. How cool. And so, I mean, it got to the modulation at the end, and he drove home.
0: That's a song in itself. That's an amazing story. The modulation, he drove home. That's incredible. So... Somebody wrote about that, obviously, yeah. for you to be able to read it. It's I think okay.
1: we have the letter somewhere. That's. Yeah, I, t- I try to save all these things.
0: That That's amazing. Okay, so we both know, we have a common friend. We have a lot of common friends, but we have a common friend in Bob Ezrin. And Bob Ezrin and Alice Cooper are almost, like, Alice Cooper isn't just one man. I mean, Bob Ezrin is as much a part of the early Alice Cooper as Alice Cooper. And then you came into that world and took Alice's career to a different level with new songs. Yeah, I would love to hear you talk about working with Alice Cooper.
1: I was having successes with Kiss, Aerosmith, Bon Jovi, uh, Joan Jett, Cher, and I got asked to meet Alice Cooper to see if we could try writing a song together. And we hit it off and um, we wrote an entire album and I produced it uh, and it's called Trash. And um, on that album was a very you know, epic song called Poison that I don't know, it's, it's got seven modulations in it. I can't even understand how we came up with this song harmonically but one of the wonderful things about Alice Cooper is he's the most relaxed person. He's not somebody that has an, an, any kind of ambition, really. He just is, and then everything happens to him, which is a kind of a great thing. And so, And he's so sweet and wonderful, you'll do anything for him. And so I brought all of those artists I was having number one songs with to the party, and um, Aerosmith participated, uh, John and Richie, Bon Jovi, um, Joan Jett. Um, it, it was like a wonderful kind of barn raising, but it was, in Alice's case, I would say like burn the barn down kind of fire. <laughs> fire was involved. And in fact, there was a uh, song on there that I had started with Joan Jett called House of Fire. And, you know... House of fire, house of fire. And it was very um, kind of like The Doors or something, a very kind of menacing song. And um, it really wasn't right for Joan. And so I asked her if it was okay if I brought it on board to, uh, you know, with Alice, and, and uh, she was cool with it. And so I, I think she actually sang on it too. And... Um, you know, it was such a good vibe and there was so much energy that we were very successful. That's That album sold like four million records, you know, at a time when, you know, for a long time he hadn't sold any records. I just wish I had gotten hired back to do the next one after that. But, eh, you know, there was an A&R guy and he had a friend and this and that, the other thing. And then all of a sudden I wasn't. On the record. I'm not sure why. And, um, you know, it was sad for me. It was very uh, sad. But I don't blame Alice at all because he just is such an open person. He, you know, somebody opens a door, he walks through it. And, you know, he's on his journey. And uh, we're working again now. Um, I wrote a song for my um, solo project. I can't call it an album. I mean, I just put out an album, a live album of, you know, my cabaret act of uh, me and a bunch of friends singing all of my hits and stuff. it's called Desmond Child Live on BMG. But I've started deciding that I'm going to start dropping singles into the Spotify space. But the only way I'm going to get attention is if big stars sing them with me. And so, um, Alice was so nice, and he came and he um, sang the duet with me. You were there that day.
0: Oh, was that the day? Yeah, that, that was the day. Release party? <laughs> yeah, we,
1: we, yeah, we, yeah, it was so much fun. It was a, a great thing, and he sang amazing. And it's kind of a fusion of urban sounds, and, and the verses are urban, and I'm singing those and he's taking the courses over, and it's like big, you know, theatrical rock. Now what I'm trying to do is get one of those big urban stars to, to jump in, you know, like and rap or sing or do something to help really get a lot of attention, like Drake or The Weeknd or Chance the Rapper or all of them to come join this barn raising So you
0: just put out an invitation to them to...
1: I know. Yeah. I I did that on purpose. Yeah. (laughs) Because I'm not getting anywhere reaching those people. So...
0: (laughs) You know, my audience is just filled with rappers, so...
1: I know. I know that's what I thought.
0: (laughs) It'll happen. I'm sure it will happen.
1: Well, I, I haven't... Because I've been doing a bunch of other stuff, I haven't really put the pedal to the metal on it. And only last week did I send it to Alice's manager, Shep Gordon, mm-hmm. Super Mensch. And um Love that. He um he loved it. So I got the the green light from Alice's side to, you know, that I can go forward with it. So I just said he said, Well what can you know, Shep uh texted me, said, Well what can I do? And I said, uh like kind of I don't know what, what he meant by that. I said well, help me get the, the you know big star to be on it with us so we can sell some records. So I'm not sure <laughs> if he was uh, down with helping me on that, but um, at least he likes the song.
0: Somebody will come to the fore. And it'll be something like your next-door neighbor's cousin has somebody who works with, you know, something like that. Yeah,
1: that's what <laughs> I'm hoping. Um, well, I met this wonderful woman, and her name is Gina Fernano, and um, she's just a mover and a shaker, and she fell in love with me, and uh, she works at ro- uh, Sound Royalties with Alex Heckey, um, and, um, you know, they're a wonderful team, and so she says she's going to help me, and, um, you know, she says, oh, I know Chance. It's like, really? <laughs> <laughs> so... um if you go on my Instagram, actually, um, I was, uh, and that's at Desmond.child on Instagram. Follow me forever. Follow me forever. Desmond.child. There's a picture of me and Chance the Rapper at the Clive Davis pre-Grammy party a couple of weeks ago. But, you know, I'm I kind of like introduced myself and like his eyes were like cross-eyed like he didn't know what I was talking about, you know. <laughs> he had never heard of me. But I took a, a picture with him and posted it like we were the best of friends. So I'm I'm hoping he sees it and then maybe subliminally it sinks in that he should be on the song.
0: What's your deadline?
1: Prior to my death. It has to be out while I'm still alive.
0: Well, you look healthy to me.
1: Oh, I know. <laughs> but, you know, I just don't have a deadline because I don't have an album to make and I don't have, you know, a reason to be crazy about it. You know, like I just will do it when the time is right. And I think that's a cool thing because in this modern age, there's a kind of egalitarian thing where you can make a record and that night you press send and you send it out to your fans, or your family, or to your friends, or to the world, and it can take flight, it can go viral, you know, and, or you can send it out when you want to. You don't have to wait, you know, for in a kind of wagon train at a record company hoping that you slip in between two big acts, you know, on the one day when no one else is releasing. I mean, that kind of pressure, you know, is like, not not what, where I'm at. I'm just into making some great music and just giving it to the world and just let, let the good times roll. I figure if the song is really great and people, people will love it and it will take flight, maybe it will end up in a movie. Maybe it will be a TV show theme. Not now, could be five years from now. Because if you're writing really great songs, they really don't go out of style, maybe the production a little bit. It only goes out of style if you're chasing today's style. You know. But if you're writing things that have you know, true meaning, and, and you can do it on a piano, you can do it with an orchestra, you can do it any which way, and it still sounds amazing.
0: Is isn't it interesting how now it's not just about the audio like we it's almost like we've all become performance artists where we we just make things and and it's it could be a little snippet of a funny comedy thing or a photograph or a meme or a film it, it, I mean you can't really just put out audio anymore and do nothing else because we we expect to be multi engaged
1: i'm very multi-engaged but my husband's not happy about it because i'm it's like it'll be two in the morning and he's like turn off your phone you know and i'm still instagramming and kind of scrolling through or you know replying or giving a comment or you know kind of like finding a picture and kind of fixing the picture so that it looks good with my face tune and, and, uh, you know, make it black and white, make it grainy, make it, like, colorful, (laughs) put a rainbow behind me. You know, like, it's become a hobby or maybe it's actually become, like, a compulsive addiction. If you want to find me, go to... I'm starting to sound like Amy Klobuchar.
0: If you want to join
1: my team, go to at Desmond.child, and that's where you'll find me under the covers trying to keep up with all my
0: fans. (laughs) Well, is there anything you're working on now that you're particularly excited about aside from your live with famous people?
1: I've been working on a Broadway musical since 2004 called Cuba Libre with my collaborator David Sigerson. And um, we've had a lot of, you know, workshops, incarnations, delays, you know, it's the true story of my family before and after the Cuban Revolution. My mother had two younger sisters who were the It Girls of Havana in the late 1950s. And one of them became the mistress of the dictator Batista, Fulgencio Batista. And the other one, after the revolution, became Castro's lover. Fidel Castro's lover. So it's like, two sisters, two dictators, one island. You do the math.
0: That's crazy that your family tree were the mistresses of two dictators.
1: I know. (laughs)
0: That's just, I mean... The
1: roles are these, like, two very strong women who had, you know, a lot of rivalry with each other, but also deep down inside a very special bond. It's a... Musical that will speak for you know to all ages, but especially now when you know more than ever women are emerging as important, strong leaders and characters in film and in television and theater, podcasts, and podcasts. Um, so I'm really happy about that. I'm also co-producing a movie with Andreas Carlson. It's called Transcon: The Making of Lou Pearlman and the boy band Revolution set in Orlando, Florida. It's very exciting. It, it could be a very, very fun thing to do, kind of like a cross between Wolf of Wall Street and Rocket Man, or something like that. Growing up, my mother being a songwriter, she was always saying, well, someday we'll live on Miami Beach in a mansion. Well, you know what? Eventually I bought four mansions and she lived in one of them. If you dream about something enough, eventually the universe just gives up fighting you on it and, and lets you have it. That's how, I, that's how I keep going.
0: And make sure you wish for the right things because you've got to be careful what you wish for. And that's
1: true. And sometimes, you know, there are lessons to be learned. But sometimes you just want somebody to be a success and have it be lovey-dovey all the way. I just want that so bad.
0: Well, it's a different time than it was And I think music is the thing that gets us all in the zone, even if it's for two hours for you.
1: Well, when I relax and listen to music, like usually during dinner time or something like that, I mean, I just play the same record over and over again for 30 years, and that's Sade's Love Deluxe. I never get sick of it, you know. I I mean, it's like, I mean, I could hear that all day long, and I'd never get sick of it. I mean, that's so great about her timeless music. And she'll put out a record every every eight years, and she can sell out, you know, Staples Center for three days in a row. It's probably the same people coming back every night. And uh, then she goes away and lives her life. But I just love that. The quality is so good. Every time she does something, it's timeless. You know, trying to get back to some of the things that I was saying at the beginning of this interview about touching something that's timeless, where does that come from? How are stars made out of nothing? Out in, you know, some nebulae. It just, where does the energy come from? Out of some darkness, all of a sudden there's some clouds and all of a sudden stars start popping out of it. Music and arts is a way that the universe is expressing itself through us. I mean, you look at it everywhere from molecules to planets and solar systems. We are just the same.
0: I hope you got to say everything you want to.
1: Oh, no, I didn't say everything I want to. <laughs>
0: you just got it all out. No, okay. I have
1: to say, please, please, please be involved and vote this year. My sons are turning 18. They're going to be voting. And, um all these new generations with this bright future and positive energy we have to vote whether you're on the right side of right or on the left side of wrong let the best person thingy or other non-gender specific person whatever win
0: thank you desmond thank
1: you